Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm your host of the Gut Check Project, Eric Rieger, joined by this guy, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, what's going on today? This is not our set. This is not our set. We are actually on location. We are very privileged to be at the FLCCC conference, which happens to be in the DFW Metroplex. And we are very excited because we have an incredible guest today. We have Dr. Flavio Cadegiani. Exactly. Cadegiani. Uh, Dr. Cadegiani is double board certified in endocrinology and internal medicine and is a sports medicine specialist as well. He is also the renowned author of the book called Overtraining Syndrome in Athletes, published in 2021. Very exciting. Also, he's also a very spontaneous person because we weren't even supposed to do this. I was working out in the gym. He was working out behind me. I was looking up some of the speakers that I wanted to meet. And all of a sudden, his beautiful face shows up. And I'll go, wow, that's the guy behind me. Hey, you want to go upstairs and do a podcast? And he was cool <laughs> well, enough to at do least it. He asked me for doing a podcast <laughs> in your room, right? Just, <laughs> yeah, so to make this that job. shows how cool he is when a random man walks up to another random man and says, you want to come up to my room for a podcast? And you show <laughs> up with a suit. I love it. It's exactly. cool. Real, real scientist in, this, in the pursuit of knowledge. So... Uh, Dr. Kajiani, thank you so much for joining the Gut Check Project. Thank you very much for having me here. It will be a great opportunity to bring some of our work and, well, whatever you want to know about and future projects as well. Absolutely. So it's really exciting. We're here for the FLCCC. So you have done a ton of work. You have done a, a work in sports medicine. You have done a work in many other fields. You are so well published. But what brings you to the FLCCC conference? Okay, so FLCCC uh, had this uh, protocol with ivermectin when the Delta variant uh, reached the U.S. in May 2021. So we in Brazil, we were facing the worst wave ever by the Gamma variant, which was four times more lethal than the, than the Delta. So actually when the Delta variant reached Brazil, that was a true relief for us. And we learned from the Gamma variant, if you combine different therapies, the results would be enhanced comparing to, compared to ivermectin alone. So I joined the group bringing new options, one of, but one of the main options were the anti-androgens. So just to give you a brief story, uh, early 2020, we noticed that men were disproportionately affected by COVID-19 compared to women already adjusting for men with the same age, at the same age, same body weight and BMI, the same comorbidities as women, and still they got worse disease compared to women. Uh, COVID-19 is a disease that depends much more on the host than on the virus because the ver the, there is a wide variety of severity even within the same variant. So among men, we discovered that those with androgenetic alopecia, which means a bald man, were more affected, more severely affected than no bald man. So this brought up to the knowledge that there would be something uh, specific to these uh, hyperandrogenism, as we would say. And some other researchers found that uh, SARS-CoV-2 entering into the cells depended on a protein called Tempers 2, which the only modulators, endocrine modulators, were the androgens. Also, we were concerned about the long-term uh, effects on the testosterone production and sperm quality. So we started giving patients through randomized clinical trials, blood double blinds, placebo controls, uh, 
anti short-term anti-androgen therapy. So we were not castrating these patients. We were protecting them against the virus that could castrate them. And indeed, we observed in the long term that patients that used anti-androgens had higher testosterone levels and better sperm accounts compared to those who did not use them. So we conducted a, a series of trials with different uh, anti-androgens, and we noticed that especially in the gamma variant and afterwards in delta variant, they were highly helpful. We also noticed that another drug called nitazoxanide, which is unfortunately very expensive here in the U.S., but it's very cheap in Brazil, uh, which is uh, an antiparasitic as well with a broad antiviral spectrum. Is uh -huh. that known as a linear in the United States? Maybe I'm not sure. I believe sure. it might. Go ahead, keep okay, talking. Okay, we discovered a, a very strong antiviral activity and improvement in clinical symptomology and to prevent uh, disease progression. So we brought some different options. I brought them some different options. And when they started combining therapies, they started to have better results with their patients that were more severely affected. Okay. Yes, it is Alinea. And Alinea uh, owned by the, the, the ski company, Roche, or not Roche. Anyways, um, yes, it was trying to find a niche in the United States, and it never got brought up that it could help with um, COVID. That's fascinating that you figured that out. Yeah, and for us, it costs like three bucks, four bucks. Yeah, it's thousands of dollars. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, thousands. Um, fascinating thing that you brought up right there. So because you're putting people on an anti-androgen, my knee jerk would be, oh my gosh, I'm going to lower my testosterone. I'm going to do this. Can you explain the mechanism why you think they actually ended up with higher testosterone? Yes. So uh, once you protect the person against the attack of the virus, so we now know that not only SARS-CoV-2, which is a virus that uh, causes COVID-19, mm -hmm. attacks the cells in our testicles, including Leydig cells and Sertoli cells. Leydig cells are those that produce testosterone and Sertoli are those responsible for the spermatogenesis. So there are some evidence now that virus may remain there and, be, and become a sanctuary. Oh. So you block the enter of this virus in these cells when you use these anti-androgens. And so, and just to summarize what you were saying earlier, uh, the use of androgens or the, uh, the presence of androgens actually was allowing the temperous uh, enzyme basically functioning as a cofactor to allow the virus to now get into the cells. And y'all were able to put the pieces together to say, we just need to stop androgen from binding to this. Exactly. Yeah. So it, there is one very important point. People, when we talk, when we talk about androgens, people... Uh, the first thing that comes to our minds are, oh, so young men with high testosterone levels would be the most affected. No. Uh, hormones are about balance. So it is a balance between dehydrotestosterone, which is DHT, right. which is uh, an androgen five times more powerful than testosterone itself. There is, uh, it's a ratio between DHT and testosterone plus the level of sensitivity in each of the tissues, so it depends on the androgen receptor. We published one of our papers is demonstrating that the level of sensi the sensitivity of these androgen receptors, which are regulated by genetics, uh -huh. are this is also a predictor of disease severity. We that we discovered through uh, through a series of men in Spain, our research group. So. Depends on all these factors rather than testosterone alone. Otherwise, we would think prostate cancer would affect more young men 
and it's androgen regulated. It sure. doesn't make sense. So it's more about the regulation. And just like what we discovered in my studies, in previous studies, that there were some previous studies showing that stradiol, which would be the predominantly female uh, hormone. Est oh, estradiol. Estradiol, uh -huh. yes. Estradiol, A2. Estradiol would be beneficial for men, but it's only beneficial when it comes together with testosterone. So the testosterone to estradiol ratio matters more than each of these hormones alone. That, mm. that brings up a different point. I remember when the news very first hit, and it was it was just being disseminated quite quickly, that um, I think finasteride is what we used here in the States uh, yeah. when people wanted to, to block. But um, you and I got that information from FLCCC mm -hmm. back then. I didn't know why, yeah. Yeah, and, and then there were, there were other people who were, who were wanting to go along with it, but then there were, I saw there were cautionary tales for people who may be on testosterone uh, replacement therapy. And what I'm hearing you say is that may actually not have made things better or worse if somebody happened to be... No. Okay. W what makes things worse, if you, st if you use the steroids, uh, these other steroids like oxandrolone or stenazolol that people use for muscle gain, uh -huh. because these are DHT uh, derivatives. Oh, so okay. So these other, mm. we published a case report demonstrating we had a 28-year-old uh, man, uh, otherwise healthy, uh -huh. that progressed to the need for oxygen in two days. And he was under high-dose oxandrolone. And when we blocked the androgen activity, in less than 48 hours, his inflammatory markers reduced more than 97%. We published in the BMJ uh, case reports journal. So let me walk back here and just to, because that's freaking brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. So your background in endocrinology. Yeah. And you realize that, that and when you're calling the tempers too, that's a TMPRS. S2. Yeah. Okay. S2. So that's the, that's a TMPRS2 on our cells. You realize that the virus uses that in addition to the H2 receptor, it can go to the TMPR. No, they actually, the TMPRS2 primes the virus. So it prepares the virus to couple with ACE2 and enter the oh. cell. Oh, yeah. So that is super cool. So you said, well, if that's happening and we know that that is related to my field, that's how you started thinking if we blocked the androgens. Exactly. So, so cool. Actually, other groups discovered in an independent manner, like three, four groups in March 2020, the viral dependence on these proteins. So it may explain, for example, why children between 1 and 10 years old were basically not affected at all by COVID-19. And it also may explain why children below the age of 1 were more affected because they have something called mini-puberty. Children, especially below 6 months, they have some uh, steroids circulating in their blood. Uh -huh. So that may explain why they were more affected than children above 1 year old but before puberty. But we need to remind that an Omicron variant started like December 2021. Uh, the, ma the main type of entry cell changed to direct infusion. So it changed completely. So it didn't depend so much on ACE2 or TAMPERS2. So the rationale on the treatment changed a little bit. So it is important. But after the XBB1, these most recent subvariants are again reusing ACE2 and TAMPERS2. So we need to pay attention to the dynamics of the virus and how it works. So we need to use our brain to think 
what may work or may not. We need to be at least as dynamic as the virus. Wow. Should not be frozen one therapy only. I love that line. We need to be as dynamic as the virus. No, because that's not how most physicians in the United States think <laughs> oh, at all. <laughs> not even in other places. Don't worry. <laughs> hey, just just to catch everybody up in case someone was curious, you 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 hit on a lot at the very beginning um, when you were when everybody was putting together the fact that androgen may be what it is that you needed to focus on, you mentioned bald people or bald men. Why is it that uh, bald men would stick out? And of course... So bald men have an enhanced androgen sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So the androgens uh, are, their signaling are expanded in these people. So we know that there is a... There is a a gene called, we say, a CAG repetition. So the, si the length of these, the number of CHG repetitions determines the, how sensible, how sens the level of sensitivity of the androgen receptor. Okay. okay. It goes a little bit beyond that. It does not fully explain everything, but it does explain a lot and correlates strictly with uh, COVID infection, disease, the severity in particular, in the gamma and in the delta variants. But the very first uh, uh, time was in Spain, in Madrid, when they noticed that in the ICU were, there were basically bald men only. Oh, wow. Yeah. Suffering from COVID. Yeah, so that's a clinical observation. That's the art of medicine. Okay. That we were supposed to be practicing during a yeah. pandemic. Because we didn't hear that at all. No. That this is the first time I'm hearing it. Well, I mean, honestly, if it hadn't been for that update on the protocol, I don't know how, at what point we actually intercept that information. That's so fascinating that they were noticing that, bald men. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And we noticed back in Brazil, and I noticed in my clinic, we were the first ones to report in the world that women affected by polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a hyperandrogenism, mm. were also more severely affected than women without PCOS. And then... A nationwide UK biobank report uh, noticed that very well. So they, they confirmed our preliminary findings, giving consistency and evidence, further evidence. So women with more androgen sensitivity, with higher androgen expression, uh -huh. also de demonstrated a higher pathogenicity from SARS-CoV-2. Okay. Well, that's that's actually rather interesting. So we've we've gone from recognizing that there's a a, a certain subset yeah. that's being more affected by COVID, and now people begin to investigate, saying, "Well, those characteristics that link these people together probably have either too much androgen or are hypersensitive to androgen." Exactly. And so now, take us through what it's like to experiment with different medications or measures to see what you can do to control that. Mm, yeah, so uh, the, fir the very first medication I hypothesized as potentially being potentially beneficial for COVID-19, which has been demonstrated in our observational studies and has just been demonstrated in some recent trials, is spironolactone. Because oh, mm. spironolactone uh, acts uh, through two major uh, mechanisms. The first one is... Uh, rebalancing the ACE2 receptors, okay? Mm -hmm. And the second one is being as anti-androgen. 
Okay. So we oh. use spironolactone for women, especially for acne, acne and hair loss. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So these women, women using spironolactone in my clinic, they very rarely contain, uh, got COVID. They did, but very mildly. So women with hyperandrogenism that were not taking spironolactone developed more severe symptoms than women without hyperandrogenism that developed more severe syndromes symptoms compared to women with hyperandrogenism, but taking a spironolactone. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So if you have someone who is um, taking that, were you, were you ever able to do like a retrospective study and say, well, if they, just like you, you described, if they were on aldactone or spironolactone, they actually just contracted COVID less or a far less severe disease. Yeah, there are a few studies demonstrating that spironolactone, when used chronically, uh -huh. could reduce the severity. Because when you control case control, whether you needed to get a full population, regardless uh, of the sure. COVID status or not. But once they, once they are infected by COVID, that's easier to study. So these ones were the ones that they developed uh, less severe symptoms compared to the ones who were not taken. Already adjusted for all the other variables. We need to remember, for example, uh, that's a tri tricky point in, in, in science. Uh, testosterone in women may not always be a good predictor. So testosterone in women with PCOS is, also, is sometimes indicator of metabolic syndrome. Mm -hmm. So when you reduce the body weight, the body fat of women, of a woman with PCOS, their testosterone levels reduce together. So testosterone is a bad marker in women for COVID, whereas it is not in men, but testosterone may be a misleading marker in women because the you normally these women that have higher testosterone levels, which with PCOS, are also more affected by metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and all the other stuff that were highly correlated with COVID severity. So we need to be careful with these confounding factors. Yeah, it really does. Now, you, when you research here, you've put out multiple studies. How many studies have you done just in the uh, COVID era, just in this okay. space? Published, peer-reviewed, PubMed indexed, 25. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what you, I came across like seven, and I was like, this guy's a killer. Yeah, why, why, don't, why don't you do anything? <laughs> oh my gosh. And I, I work, I have my, my private practice where I work on average 12 hours per day. So that was only my free time. Well, I'm single, no kids, so it's easier. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so impressive. I mean, it is, these are peer-reviewed journals and you know how that goes. They send yeah. something back, you have to modify it in a time frame, come back and it's just this, it's ping pong. You're, yeah. Till yeah. eventually somebody goes I, I, fine. I'm a senior editor for BMC Endocrine Disorders, which is part of nature. It's bringing nature as well. So I know how it works. Yes, it's a bit hard. Uh, sometimes it's a bit walk, awkward, awkward, but, uh, and we, you need to remember that we faced uh, additional barriers, which were political barriers uh, that not always we were able to get published because that could go against some narratives. So we had these additional uh, obstacles compared to, so virus was not, was not the only enemy there. Well, this is a whole separate discussion. Exactly. But, the but we, we had more, so just to let you know, we had, we have a, an addition, in addition we have like approximately 15 uh, preprints 
that we didn't have the chance to submit them. Uh, so we still have a lot of papers waiting for. So we were just waiting to calm down so we could submit the other papers as well, which we should do throughout this year. Well, it's so fascinating because as I was trying to do a little research on this, um, there was an article not out of Brazil, um, out of one of the other countries nearby, that um, basically the title of it was uh, anti-androgen therapy, one of the biggest crimes in COVID treatment. And then I started reading it and said the use of proxalutamide. Proxalutamide. Yeah, yeah. And of course, then I found the other articles, which are very well done, peer reviewed, journaled. And that's the problem that we run into when it goes against the narrative of the government, then the government is trying to do counter action to say this is the, this is not valid when you have 25 studies you got published. Exactly. I mean, shit. <laughs> I read your study on proxy, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, proxalutamide or what have you, and the, the results uh, were phenomenal in yeah, terms were, of, yeah. yeah. But they were, not only they were phenomenal like in, in paper, but in practice. For example, this was a double-blind study, but the assistant, assistant doctors, they were correct in their, we asked them systematically whether they thought that their patients were taking placebo or proxalutamide following the course of the disease after the initiation of the therapy. So they did not know whether these patients were taking proxalutamide or placebo. Barely 97 to 98% got it right, the, the wow. right answer. So, and the response was dramatic. And I'm not a dramatic person. Sure, so, sure. <laughs> uh, the response for, uh, there was a city called Itacoachara in the middle of the Amazon. The first day we arrived there, uh, everyone on high, high dose oxygen, there was not enough oxygen for the hospital. There were like 150 patients hospitalized there. And because of the logistics, uh, there were like lots. So they received more uh, active than placebo. So when we came back there four days after, they were discharging like literally <laughs> dozens of patients per day. Whoa. Yes. That's great. So this was like, uh, there's nothing, there's no double blind, there's no scientific article that can truly translate the feeling of saving these lives. Yeah. Oh, I'm fantastic. so glad that they, I'm so glad that was the shuffle that they got too. Yeah. It's great. And it, when you read and when you see all these accusations, all the fabricated doubts, because it, so science and BMJ were paid to write articles against us. And they said it openly, they were paid for that. So, we have this written and confessed. So wow. we know there was who was behind it. This is these are some questions that at a certain point need to be answered, but they won't give they won't they will not give us the answer. So we need to think one thing. I always tell people uh, we need a very deep reform of the scientific uh, uh, scientific world in terms of so science is controlled by the journals. So only, okay, except for preprints sometimes, especially in the pandemics. Except for uh, what? I'm sorry. Except for preprints that are not. Oh, preprints, yeah. Re preprints, yes, which are not regulated. Uh, uh, editors are those who control science. And who control the editors and the journals? We don't have anyone. I needed to complain because I underwent very abusive relationship with some of these editors. Eric Rubin, New England Journal of Medicine, he rejected my paper after the acceptance by all the reviewers because he said it twice. 
that they do not analyze the data of what they publish. And they needed to analyze my data before they published. So they were not capable of. I have it written twice in my emails. So when the most prestigious journal in the planet do not, do not analyze the data they publish, this is highly concerning to me. And then uh, Frontiers uh, got a report to try to retract my paper. The report was completely messed up. They refused to provide further information and to respond to any of my questions, and they re retracted anyway. So this is very abusive and incorrect. And if anyone supports this type of uh, authoritarianism, uh, we may need to <laughs> question the whole system. So I underwent these attacks uh, from these people. They needed. They were. They had an agenda that was crystal clear. And I, I am a very uh, down-to-earth person. I don't think that I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. So, but I, once I underwent all these, it's expected that I question how the system is built up of. And if I give you further examples, one simple thing, you will very rarely see a positive study on a supplement such as vitamin D on these EV League journals. But when they are negative, it's easier to publish because there is classical bias in publishing papers that it's easier to publish when they are positive results than when they are not positive. But this is not entirely true because if you go for supplements that could replace medications, especially those who are higher cost or patent, they are easy, easier to be published if you're a negative result. I just had a conversation with Dr. Paul Merrick where he was discussing the new data coming out on vitamin D and cancer and high-dose vitamin D with cancer, and he was saying the exact same thing. A simple thing that we're not getting out there because it's very hard to get the positive results published in something that is, you know, a yeah. supplement. So we cannot judge the, the quality of the paper by the journal where it is published. This is very important. Well, was it during, I mean, both the Lancet and the New England had to retract? Surge's fear. That was a complete fraud, yeah. and I think that they had the duty to show us how the review process was, because many things that called our attention that it wouldn't even pass for in a first review process at all. And they were published very close to each other, like very in the same days. So it's, it seems that they were coordinated. I mean, I'm not saying that they were, but it seemed like, because they were so... I know they were publishing faster, but that doesn't seem that it went... Because if it, is, if it did went under a review process and an editor read their reviewers' responses and allowed these papers to come out, there's something very shameful there in this process. You know, a weird, a weird thing to consider is um, we've seen that play out with, with vitamin D, or you certainly have read about it here recently in the covering up of, of supplementation if it even looks like it may, as you put it, replace a pharmaceutical However, when you were studying the uh, uh, proxalutamide, there was a company, and it was a pharmaceutical company. Uh, uh, was it Kintor? Yeah, Kintor. Kintor. Yeah. So where, where is their position if they feel like that they've got a positive result with what could be yeah. a so, pharm... Explain that. So uh, we one must understand one of the things. Uh, we were testing the theory. So we wanted to test antiandrogens, more powerful antiandrogens. Uh, this is uh, 
proxylotomide is called uh, a, a drug class called non-steroidal antiandrogens. So we were seeking for anyone. So we tried apolutamide, darolutamide, enzalutamide. We tried all of them. And there were companies that even not only refused to donate us, so they, so Kintor only donated the drug. The drug. I did not receive one cent from them. So uh, not only they refused, but they tried to discourage us from studying. Because they own drug. Yes. So that doesn't uh, make sense. Yes, well, it's a, all a competition. You need to remember, sure. these drugs are meant to be used for ears. Remember, for prostate cancer. So uh -huh. these guys will use it for ears. So how much should a company make per patient if I use it for seven days only? Oh. So everything needs to be thought. And proxylotomide was developed to be uh, times cheaper than their concurrent, like enzalotomide, which belongs to Pfizer. Chostelos, uh -huh. which belongs to Pfizer. So... Uh, we need to remember uh, that there's a competition. So it's big pharma. So Kinter is not a big pharma at all. Right. We're just a biotech. And we were just seeking for drugs. And very people know this. We signed an agreement that uh, we put a condition that they would sell the full treatment for $11 to Brazil in case we found positive results. And in addition, they would donate almost 200,000 tablets. So... There was something helping, truly helping patients. Sort of what happened with Ivermectin and Merck like 40, 50 years ago. If we found that it was highly helpful, it would be sort of similar process. Okay. So that's the reason. So I'm not a person entirely against big pharma at all. I think they do produce good molecules. And I always say that the less effort they make you, they make to try to make you know the molecules, the better they are. So when they keep pushing you all the time, <laughs> yes, they need to. So you, I do prescribe drugs from the big pharma article, and big pharma they are all not they are not all made the same. Which I found very interesting is that we need to look at which of them uh, ran to make money on COVID and which of them did not. And I'm not I do not belong to any big pharma. Right. I do not receive any pharmaceutical representative in my clinic, as per the rule as per the rule in my clinic that I developed. And, there, and so I have these uh, because this gives me a level of freedom that no money pays. But uh, we need to acknowledge that there are differences in terms of ethics between them. Sure. It's just wild, though. Let me ask you a question, listening to you and your passion. Flavio, you have a clinic, you work, and in addition to that, you were able to publish 25 studies during this period and not not just publish 25 studies, but also fight to publish 25 studies. And you're here now on your own time, on your own dime, giving lectures. I mean, what drives you? That is so cool. Oh, a mission. By far, of course. Uh, my close friends said, uh, always told me, you'd have made much more money if you hadn't underwent all these studies because I donated, in terms of time and money, almost half a million dollars for research. So not only I did not make money because I did not, I stopped seeing patients as much as I used to, and I do have an, a waiting list. If you call my clinic today, you're going to have doing a hundred, uh, hundreds of people waiting list to be seen by me. And it's a cash-only clinic. And uh, they, so I, I had the option to be there all the time. I could, I, right now I could be there. But I decided that I needed to convey my message. And... I don't want to make anyone's head. I just want to 
tell the world what we've learned and the lessons and reflections. And I don't want to have any persuasive uh, talk. I just want to show. And then whether they're going to accept, at which extent they're going to accept what I have to tell them, they will be with them. But I think I have a mission. So whenever you have this ability to discover, to uh, explore, I think we have the duties and responsibilities telling people what we learned. This is my thoughts, and I do not regret anything of what has happened to me. So, I mean, I do not regret any of my actions. So, uh, in and around COVID, it's beyond disease. You've already talked about some of the treatments and some of them that kind of gotten squashed. Of course, there was, there was definitely one pathway which was finally endorsed for everyone, and that happened to be the vaccine. And I did hear a an interview with you, and I can't re quite recall how long ago it was, uh, but you made mention that you actually suffered a brief uh, vaccine injury. Is that correct for yourself? Yeah, I had two doses of AstraZeneca, mm -hmm. which you guys did not have here in the U.S., and I developed a severe muscle weakness. Oh. So then after that, there's two times I developed COVID afterwards, <clears throat> I developed muscle weakness, and the last time, which was two months ago, this was so severe that my my legs and my arms uh, stopped responding to my comments. Whoa. So I was hospitalized. They thought, oh, they almost died of COVID. No goodness. From COVID, I was cured. Like in 48 hours, I got negative result. But the the an aberrant immune. So I have some autoimmune disorders like Hashimoto's, uh, antibodies for celiac disease. So uh, it's expected that I will develop other autoimmune disorders. I'm sorry, just that you you knew that before you had the vaccine, or this developed after the vaccine. So my the, the, celiac the, disease yeah. auto antibodies coincidentally showed up after 2021 when I had the shots. Yeah. Mm. How does the AstraZeneca for those who may not know? How does the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine and its mechanism of action differ from the two that? are more prevalent here, the uh, uh, Moderna and uh, Pfizer shot. So we also have Pfizer there. Mm -hmm. um, the technology is different. So AstraZeneca is a viral vector, which is Jensen. Was Jensen the same one? It sort of imitates more the... I would say we had uh, Sinovac as well, okay. Brazil, which is the virus itself, like attenuated, which I think was best. Sure. I mean, least worse. Uh, it was not as effective, even though I do believe it protected the elders because they were the first ones who got vaccinated in early 2021 with the gamma variants because the, the, the oldest population in Brazil was not as affected. That called our, our attention. And coincidentally, were those who received this vaccine. It, its duration was like three months only. But, I mean, I'm not, uh, we do not expect different adverse effects other than those that happen in COVID-19. We do, but very few different ones, whereas viral vector may enhance some uh, prothrombotic uh, events more than COVID infection. Okay. Whereas the mRNA uh, is like a Trojan horse, so you don't have your innate response, and then you got inside the cells, and then it, it, you don't have the chance to have your first defense, right? Mm -hmm. So I published a paper, I don't know if you saw that, that brings my PhD here. Uh, demonstrating through a very compelling uh, hypothesis that catecholamines, which are basically adrenaline and noradrenaline, are very likely the key factors that lead to this 
vaccine-induced myocarditis and possibly certain deaths. That would make sense. And no, I did not see that. And we need to do a whole podcast on that one paper. That's amazing. Yeah. So we, so in my in my previous uh, we demo, we know by physiologically, may, young males are the ones that produce more adrenaline or adrenaline, and athletes produce them even more. And in my PhD, we discovered that even during resting, athletes had higher uh, uh, catecholamines than no, compared to matched non-active subjects. And those with overtraining had even higher catecholamines. So we would imagine that those sudden deaths in myocarditis happen in the peak of catecholamines. So it would be a noradrenergic or adrenergic storm-induced myocarditis and possibly sudden death because myocarditis may lead to sudden death. It's not only heart attack. So it's obvious whenever someone comes in and they have the symptoms of what would be myocarditis, did you ever encounter someone who may not have those high catecholamine expressions and they have maybe subclinical myocarditis? Of course. So uh, after the vaccine, we were not actively searching for myocarditis. So only those with with specific symptoms uh -huh. were those who were diagnosed. So we have two populations that very likely had myocarditis. Those who did not have any symptom, the, those who did not have any symptom, and those who may have developed uh, no specific symptoms like fatigue or reduced physical capacity without other symptoms. So the, so the symptomatic myocarditis may be just the top part of an iceberg. And uh, as we know, it's, this is a matter of fact that whether even mild myocarditis, as they are trying to push these, uh, though these were mild ones, the long-term uh, prognosis uh, is not very favorable. So many of these people, especially the, young, the younger ones, they tend to develop uh, heart chronic failure with like 10 years. So you need to pay double attention to this population. And this is not now that we're going to see this epidemic of heart failure. Once again, an interesting way that you were able to come together with your background in sports medicine, writing the book, Overtraining Syndrome in Athletes, and then all of a sudden you get affected with a muscular issue that you can't move, and you have this paper where you linked the athlete and those catecholamines. You're really putting all your knowledge pieces and then you get affected. What was your mood like when you were in a hospital and you couldn't move your legs? Yeah, so the difference is that I, I thought that it was either a myositis or something in the junk, in neuromuscular junction. So these were my thoughts, but my receptors for... so And I have a timoma <laughs> to help that I discovered in 2020. I don't know if I had it before because during my CT for my first COVID-19 episode, I had this timoma, which is related to myasthenia gravis, uh. Uh, but I do not have positive antibodies for this. Uh, could have been something like that. Um, I underwent glucocorticoid for one month. It really helped me. I don't know if it would be helpful as helpful without them, but that was which I responded. So, and the funniest thing is that Less than one week after I had this problem, I received a paper to review, which was, call, was called Musculoskeletal uh, Dysfunctions in COVID-19. Oh, <laughs> so, <goodness>. so, goodness, <laughs> really? 
<gasps> That's why he didn't review any of the other papers. You know, sudden no. blindness at COVID nineteen. Nope, nope. <laughs> exactly. No, and this paper, they, they 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 did not mention my specific case, and I knew that I had it. So I said, okay, there were no case reports of. So I said, well, <laughs> there may be some out there. So I, I asked the authors to better review the literature because they did not. Uh, they wrote that basically was due to the inflammatory phase and not inherent to the virus, but I did not have the inflammatory phase and I did develop the muscular symptoms. Wow. Wow. Let's do a couple rapid fire questions. And um... Well, so for everybody who's watching on uh, Rumble and on YouTube, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Flavio, thank for you. joining us. You bet. And uh, what we're going to do now, we have launched uh, Gut Check Project Raw, so you can join us at uh, Gut Check Project, uh, .locals.com, and you can continue with us and hear some of our more in-depth questions here with Dr. Flavio. Thanks again. This concludes the free portion of the Gut Check Project. For full access to the raw interviews, just visit gutcheckproject.com. Click the GCP Raw Circle and use code HERO for a free month plus all of the access with being a supporter of the Gut Check Project. Please share this episode with your friends and thank you for being a part of the Gut Check Project.